The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. As many of you may know, uh, James, our, our normal worship leader, uh, it just got married yesterday. So as far as I know, Instagram uh, verified that it did actually happen. So it's done, it's sealed. Yeah, this is their first day as a married couple, James and Ketty. They'll be moving back out here in a couple weeks. So I think in, at the end of maybe two more weeks, they'll be coming back. So we're excited to uh, see them as they start their life together here. Uh, and Pete and Janae are out there with them. So that's where Pete is today, our, our normal lead pastor, lead preaching pastor. He's out there. So, yeah, we're thinking of them and praying for them. Uh, so this, is, this, this Sunday is a kind of an out-of-series uh, sermon. So we just finished four weeks going through the beauty of the cross, talking about looking at the cross as we've studied, uh, as we were in the Easter season, kind of deeply reflecting on all that the cross meant for us. Uh, so we're taking a break today uh, before we start our next series before summer. So kind of out of series, so it was up to me to pick out what we should preach on this morning. And uh, so I figured, you know, there's something in the Bible called the greatest commandment. So I thought, that's a good place to start. We're going to fill out a, a Sunday. Why don't we talk about what the most important thing is in the Bible, the greatest commandment. And so it's a famous one, at least part of it is, so I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Um, and so it's good to visit these sometimes and kind of remind ourselves of what um, common verses, how profound and meaningful they still actually are for us. So let's go there. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Find it in your Bible. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Like I said, it's a common, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's a common um, passage from the Bible that we've heard of, talked about a lot. Um, and it's kind of sweet. We can think of it. We can think of like kind of the endearing nature of this. Oh, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. As we reflect on it and think about it, um, it's kind of, it, it, it's a snippet. It just tells you what to do. It's very straightforward. So it's kind of a, I was having a little trouble thinking, how do I preach this? How do I preach what it already tells you to do? What do I need to say about this? It just says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Boom, done. That's it. See you later. Happy Cinco de Mayo. But it's kind of a sermon in itself, right? Here's who God is. This is what you do, and this is what it should look like. This is what God deserves. This is what it should look like. So what did I say? But I was thinking about it. I'm reflecting on it. Why does Moses have to tell us this? What is he saying to us as he's instructing us in this way? And I think when we, when we sit in it and we think about what he's telling us and the weight of what he's saying and what he's getting at, uh, I was kind of moved, I reflected on it with three different words. And so I kind of am approaching it through that way. How should we feel? What should, we, what should our interaction be with this? 
And I think it's painful, it's costly, and it's beautiful. It's painful, it's costly, and it's beautiful. It's painful because we are more stubborn than we realize. It's costly because our affections, our time, our energy are valuable to us. And it's beautiful because it speaks, it speaks into our identity and the purpose of our lives. So first, this is painful because we're more stubborn than we realize. If you think about this first and you look at it, beyond the, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and he goes into the details. This is what you should do. This is exactly how you should do it. This is, you need to put it on your wrist, put it on your forehead, put it everywhere. This is painfully micromanaging. It's what it feels like. It feels like he's telling you exactly how to do it and what you need to do. It makes me think of a, of a movie I saw in high school, a funny movie, a movie I like quite a bit, Office Space. I don't know if you've seen it before. It's about the, the, the life of, of corporate American job in a cubicle where he was majorly micromanaged. But uh, he, he has a girlfriend. Jennifer Aniston plays this character. And she works at a restaurant, kind of like Chili's, you know, kind of a bar and grill type thing. And she's sort of a free spirit. And they're supposed to wear these vests with uh, badges and buttons and all kinds of things that he calls flair. So it's like this, they're supposed to express themselves with their personality by wearing all this flair on their vests. But she doesn't like doing this. She thinks this is totally stupid. So she doesn't do it. So her manager approaches her and says, you need to be doing this. He's real passive aggressive about it, saying this is how you have to express yourself. And so um, that's, that's their policy. That's their policy because they, they want people to go above and beyond. So they're kind of forcing them through a means of what it looks like to go above and beyond. People don't naturally want to. That's why it's a policy. Or they want to express themselves in a different way than that. That was her way. I don't, this isn't how I express myself. I want to do what I want. And so she quit, and she left. And it's just a funny uh, scene, but it kind of speaks to how we are stubborn. We don't like being told what to do, how to do it, and how to express ourselves. But the reason we are is because we don't like doing what's not natural for us. We want to express ourselves differently, but we want to... Um, we like to decide for ourselves. We don't like being told what to do. And so Moses, in this, sta- in this verse, is making it painfully clear to us that deciding to love God is not natural for us. He's saying that we have to work hard to think of it every moment of every day. He's telling us to put it before our eyes, to, write, to put it on our wrists, on our door, bo- on our door posts, our, our mantles, our car dashboards, so funny that this is like thousands and thousands of years ago, and he's speaking to us today. You remember like WWJD bracelets? You know, binding things to your wrist? It's like what we're doing a few years ago, binding it to our wrist. Uh, people wearing bracelets for causes, uh, putting post-it notes on their mirrors or their dashboards. Um, it's because we're stubborn. It's because we forget. We always go back to what we want and what, we, what is most natural for us. And giving our wholehearted devotion to God is not natural for us. It's painful when we have to admit that we need to be told what to do. And that's exactly what Moses is doing here for us. He's telling us that we need to do it and, that we, and how to do it because it's so not what we do. The next thing that we see and that we, we feel as we think about what we're required of here, what he's telling us is that this is costly. Our affections, our time, our energy are valuable. 
So I remember one time for a special occasion, I actually can't remember what it was, whether it was an anniversary or a birthday or something, uh, I wanted to try to do something special and different for my wife, something different than a gift, something um, that would be really special and represent the time that I thought of her and, um, yeah, just something, something outside the norm. So I wanted to try to write her a poem. But I thought, you know, I, I didn't want to just do any type of poem, uh, just, you know, something cheesy. I wanted to try to go above and beyond, be like real romantic and do this really good, legit poem. So I remembered in high school uh, learning about sonnets in Shakespeare. So like, okay, I'm going to write her a sonnet because it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of mental energy, creativity. Um, so I looked up the rules on how to write a sonnet. And I had a paper and pen and sat there for about five minutes and quit because uh, I just sat there with a blank mind because it's hard. It, I don't know if you know the rules of a sonnet, but there's a lot of them in how the story is supposed to be shaped and all the different components and stuff. And sorry for such a nerdy example, but this shows why Shakespeare is Shakespeare and I'm not because it was really, really hard. I did a cost-benefit analysis and was like, this is not going to land. My time, my energy, my value, you know, is not... Uh, going to translate over there, so it's not worth it. So I got to come up with a different idea and go to Amazon. No. Um, so it doesn't mean she wasn't worth it, but we just realize that our time is a finite resource. It's something that we don't like to give up. It was better spent somewhere else. And that's what Mo Moses is calling for all of it, all of our time, our resources, our energy, to be directed to God in love. This sounds exhausting and impossible when we really count the cost. He calls for our heart, our soul, our might. The word heart here is not just talking about like, you know, you know, a love emotion, but it's calling for, it's talking about our thoughts and our feelings, our courage, our will, every part of our uh, causal core of our being. When he says soul, he's talking about our personality, uh, our being, our livelihood, our relational capacity, it's our soul. That's what he's getting after. When he says uh, might, when he's talking about his might, our might, he's talking about our energy, our strength, our influence. That one gets me right now. I don't feel like I have a lot of energy these days. I feel like that's a, my most limited resource, and there's so many different things competing for my energy. What we have to offer people uh, and causes and initiatives is, is limited, and so it's valuable. That's what makes things valuable is when they're limited. We count the cost every day, and if we're, if we're honest, the thought of giving ourselves to one more thing makes us anxious and exhausted. Right? Uh, one more thing to give myself to. One more thing that'll make bedtime longer. One more thing that'll occupy my mind while I'm trying to rest. I just need to rest. One more thing to think about when I'm sitting in my house, when I'm raising in the rising in the morning. One more thing to fit in our schedule. One more thing to give planning and mental energy to it actually is kind of ex exhausting when we count what our life, when we, when we survey our life and see what's going on in our hearts and our lives. I think these feelings of exhaustion and hesitation and anxiety as we think about this are symptomatic of something. It points to what the state of our hearts are. It tells us that our hearts are distracted and split among many things. So the reason this is hard for us to consider, why it's so costly to us, is because we are seeing it as, we want to see it as 
fitting it in to our life. We consider all that we have on our plate. We look at everything on our plate. And we consider all these things in our lives that we might not call non-negotiables, but they really are functionally in our lives. They're, they're things we're not really willing to give up or let, let our grasp off of. We don't want to give them up. We want to fit in loving God among the competition, everything else that's competing for our hearts and affections. There are so many things competing for our hearts. And we try to get a piece of everything, and loving God becomes an afterthought. It becomes an idea in our head that we know is right and we think we feel, but it oftentimes is a functionally very low priority in how we live our life. So loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, all our heart, soul, might, sounds cute and sweet on a poster and a coffee mug, but not so much when we open up our calendar or when we get a bad report about our children's behavior at school. All of a sudden, this idea is a little different, if we're honest. What is this pointing to? We see God as one among many. And this is exactly what Moses is challenging here. God is one of many things in our life that we have to consider. This is what Moses is speaking into in his people when he gives this command. It's really significant here how Moses starts this command. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's really emphasizing God's oneness here. So whether it was foreign gods, idols, their neighbor's property, their own comfort, their own preferences, um, the Israelites were confronted with the same issue we are today. A lot of things competing for their love and affections that they were prone to give it to. So the question, the question for us here is not whether we love God or don't love God as much as it is it's whether we love God or we love everything else. Calling attention to God's oneness was countercultural then and it is now. He's saying that since God is one, he deserves all of our love and worship. He deserves all of our purpose and affection. He doesn't share that place with other people or things. To give him only a piece of our love is to not love him at all. Our very identity is to be found only in God and loving him is our purpose. And that's what's beautiful about this. It's costly. It's, uh, it's painful to admit that we need this, to see, to take inventory of our lives. But it's beautiful and there's something that is so beautiful about reading this and seeing this picture here of giving our lives to something. I think we all, just as humans, as part of being human, that we have this deep down longing to live lives compelled by the beauty of something. We desperately want our lives to have rich meaning and purpose. And that's, and that's, excuse me, and that's what we're, we were just talking about. That's what all these things, these examples we were talking about was... Um, the competition for giving our meaning and our purpose to. There's so many things around us selling us on finding our identity, our purpose, our meaning in their product, their service, their affiliation. This condition and longing in us has a story. There's a reason we long for this. We feel this way because we were designed and created by the one true God to be in a loving relationship with Him. Our identity and our purpose was created to be found in a relationship of love with God. 
That's how God created us. He found a loving relationship with him. But sin, and this is the story, sin profoundly changed that relationship. The need remained, but the ability to do it and to rest in it and find it was changed. Sin is the cause of what we feel in those first two points. It's why it's painful. It's why we're, we're stubborn. It's why, we're, why we hold so tight a grasp on the things in our life. Sin is the cause of that. Our hearts are naturally bent away from God. Our desires and longings are directed at, because of that, are directed at everything else but God. We are living with a constant purpose and desire to love and are giving our lives to anything and everything to try to fill that void. Moses is telling his people that loving God is to be the purpose of their entire life and, and is to flow from their identity as God's people. Moses is calling out to his people to remember this, to remember God. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's like, remember God, remember your story. This verse that we're talking about today is just the main point in a bigger sermon that, uh, that Moses is giving to his people. Uh, so here he's, giving, he's doing what good speakers do is he's saying, here, if there's one thing you need to remember from all of what I'm teaching you and telling you, it's this, this is it. And that's what we're talking about today. But this takes place in a bigger sermon. So 40 years earlier, a little more than 40 years earlier, God had revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. He, he, he revealed himself as, God's, um, as, as Israel's God, the God of their fathers. And he, he uh, revealed himself to Moses to, to lead him to rescue his people out of slavery from Egypt. They proved to be, so, so, so Moses did this. He led the people miraculously. God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He led them out into the wilderness, and the people forgot right away. They started, they forgot God. They complained. They were forgetful and very um, unfaithful. And God punished their disobedience then. They were disobedient. He gave them this promised land. They're out in the wilderness. He punished their disobedience by causing them to wander for 40 years, wander in the wilderness for 40 years so that this generation would be judged and die off before they were ready to enter the promised land. But despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. He stayed with them. He didn't leave them or forsake them. He judged them, but he was faithful. He would not leave them or give up on them. Now in this passage, Moses is reminding the people of their story, of this backstory of unbelief but reminding them of God's loving faithfulness and his plan to give them the land that he promised he would give them. So this sermon is taking place right on the brink of Israel after this 40 years, after this story, right on the brink of going into the promised land. And this is a crucial moment for them because they're about to inhabit the land that God's giving them, cities they didn't build for themselves, um, wells they didn't dig. And Moses is about to die. So God had told them that he is going to die before the people go in there go into the land, and he will not be with them as he enters the land. So he's giving them, as he's preparing them for that, he's like, this is my last ditch effort. I'm throwing the the kitchen sink at you. I'm reminding you of everything that you need to know as you're going into God's plan for you. He's reminding them of who they are, who God is, and what his purpose for them is. He's reminding them that they, as they go into the promised land, that they are to be God's display people. 
that they were chosen by God to be his special people and to live a life so devoted to God that their world would, 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 around them would see God's holiness and wisdom and worship him. That was their identity as God's people and that was their purpose. They were to remember God and respond in love. Remembering God, remembering his loving faithfulness was to transform their life. He says this command to love God shall be on their hearts. This law of loving God was to, to be on their hearts. It was to be their instinct, their deepest desire, their strongest inclination. It was their purpose and their identity. This command that it should be, I'm sorry, because it speaks to, <clears throat> sorry, the command that, that it should be on their hearts is, this is a really significant statement here. Because it speaks to something, as we've seen, that wasn't true. It wasn't on their hearts. It wasn't a part of their instinct and their inclination. Their hearts were broken by sin. They didn't just need strategies and instruction. They needed a new, transformed heart. They failed as a people in their purpose and their identity. They and we need more than instructions and strategies. We need a Savior. Who can do this? Who can give all of their heart, soul, and mind? All of their heart, soul, and mind. Uh, all of their heart, soul, and might to God, to loving God. Who can give God what he deserves? Who can be trusted to show the world a life perfectly glorifying to God? Jesus. Jesus is the identity we need. We can't look at this command to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might and look within ourselves for the power to do it. We need to look in faith to Jesus and his righteousness alone. We need to come humbly to God and acknowledge our failure to love him as he deserves and appeal to Jesus' perfect life. And when we do that, when we appeal to Jesus, when we acknowledge our sin and we come to him and we rest in him alone and his righteousness, we're actually given a new heart. The heart that loves God. We need to remember, we need to look to God and remember that he has worked in us a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this heart is a heart that genuinely desires to love God the way he deserves. Of course, we're still touched by sin. We're still unable to perfectly love God. Yet by faith, we are identified not with ourselves and our sin and our failure, but we're identified with Christ's perfect love. And this grace, when we see this grace, when we see the grace that we've received, transforms our entire life. Everything in our life is transformed and driven by this grace. As we fail in, in daily in loving God, we rest in knowing Christ, knowing that Christ is our identity and his mercies are new every day. Knowing this grace becomes the fuel behind our purpose to love God in all and with all. The gospel and the grace that God has given us, the new heart, what we didn't deserve, when we remember who God is in the story, that drives us to want to orchestrate all of our life around God and his grace and his mission in this earth. So let's pray.